All right, let's talk about military strategy there in, in this Russian-Ukraine conflict. Jason Castillo is with us, associate professor, co-director of the Al Britton Center for Grand Strategy out of Texas A&M. I also worked in the Department of Defense's Strategy and Plans office. Jason, thank you for spending a couple minutes with us. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, tell us if what we're hearing in terms of the media's instant analysis of this war, because I'm always a little suspect of, well, now look, there's a 40-mile-long convoy. I mean, how, does, how do you have 40 miles long of tanks? Mm, mm. A 40-mile-long convoy of, of tanks and vehicles coming in. Oops, wait, now there's not enough fuel to get them to go where they're going to go. This is a lot of herky-jerky for a six-day-old war. Can you kind of weigh in on, on what's accurate and what isn't? Well, I think it's... Uh important to look at some historical examples that could shed light on on the Russian invasion in Ukraine. First, in our, our recent history, I'm old enough to remember Operation Iraqi Freedom. And five, six days into that war, uh, the media was kind of histor- hysterical. You remember Jessica mm-hmm. Lynch took a wrong turn. And uh, in retrospect, that hysteria was unwarranted, and the U.S. won quite decisively, at least in the major combat operations by early April. Right. Second example I would use is uh, the German invasion of France in May 1940, where there were also uh, mistakes and long columns of troops that had fuel problems. So I think we had to just pump the brakes a little bit and understand that there are early days still yet. Nevertheless, I do think you have enumerated some of the problems that the Russians have encountered. One, miscalculating the Ukrainian will to fight. Uh, It's not enough for the Russians to show up and go boo for the Mm -hmm. Ukrainians to collapse. Uh, They are digging in, but we should expect that. Especially in western Ukraine, they're defending their homeland. Um, We've also seen some blunders by the Russian military. Uh, They took down part of the air defense on the first day, but they're really not controlling the skies. And if you don't control the sky, then why are you mounting... um, vertical envelopments or uh, air trooper assaults on airports when you can't defend those paratroopers and there's those air transport planes when they're landing. Why don't they control the sky, Jason? Well, there's a debate about this in my community. Some folks say that uh, the Russians are wary of expending their limited supply of precision-guided munitions, uh, the smart bombs that we've been using in the different wars over the last 30 years, the Russians have them too, uh, but they don't have a large, as large a supply. Uh, there's some concern they expended a lot of those in their venture in Syria. Another problem is, and this is not mutually exclusive with the lack of PGMs, but also that it's hard to conduct air-ground operations. So even when the U.S. goes to war, you will have incidents in friendly fire. The concern in the Russian Air Force and Russian ground forces is they don't have much practice doing this close air support and air interdiction in a way that would harm Russian ground forces. Mm. So they could be reticent, plus assuming in their original assumption or the original war plan that the Ukrainians would be a pushover, you know, kick the door down and the whole rotten regime will collapse. And that seems to not be happening. Mm. 40-mile-long convoy. Put that in some perspective. How many soldiers is that? What, 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 what does that mean? Well, when we talk about conventional operations, we often talk about force-to-space ratios, which are the number of forces you can actually physically put in a particular place. So in the Cold War, we used to talk about 
an armor brigade, which is roughly about 3,500 people and all of their vehicles and logistics. Uh, the Army doesn't like to talk about in these terms, but you often hear, hear it in terms of tooth to tail, the fighting part being the teeth, the tail being the logistics. You take those that amount of force, those, those people and their vehicles, and they basically can occupy an eight-kilometer piece of territory. So if you have several of these brigade combat teams, the Russians use smaller units, but they're basically the same, then you're going to have these traffic jams. Plus, uh, if you look at the analysis about the terrain there, it's a part of winter where it could get muddy, and so you want to avoid that problem by using the roads. There's been some reporting, however, that the Russians are using the roads but are getting lost or getting tied up with different units. Um, traffic jams are a natural part yeah. of, of Blitzkrieg. This they happened also to the Germans to be in World like, War II. They also seem to be sitting ducks if somebody could get overhead of them and just, you know, I heard one of these analysts say, well, if the U.S. was in there, that, that line would be gone. Uh, very quickly, you know, you, wow, you, thank you for lining up. Here, we'll just fly over you and bomb the whole line out. Uh, of course, Ukraine doesn't have that capability, but do they have some ability to, to take this out like when they're all lined up like yeah. that? Well, what I, ha- what I think you are seeing is that in the early parts of the war, Russian maneuver units, the fighting parts would get ahead of the logistical trains and kind of go forward without protecting their logistics and the Ukrainians smartly would attack these unprotected logistical units. And that's why you're seeing abandoned vehicles. That's why you're seeing reports of fuel, uh, vehicles uh, lacking fuel, uh, food not getting to troops. Uh, This is a real mess in terms of coordinating large-scale operations. Now, could we as uh, as the West, and I say the West meaning both America and Europe, how do you get, they say, well, we're going to supply weapons to the, Ukrainians. And I just think of that, I go, okay, these things aren't, you don't put them in FedEx and and send them. These are are some big things that you've got to transport to get somehow, you've got to find an opening that isn't guarded by the Russians, which I assume is the eastern part of of Ukraine right now, like Mm -hmm. Poland and and other areas like that. Then you've got to get them in. Then you've got to get them to the to the people. You've got to show them how it works. You've got to get them up to the front and into the area. But talk about the logistics of when we say we're going to supply them with weapons. How long a process and how effective a process is or isn't that? Well, or normally the whole process of foreign military sales is a long one because you want to make sure that even, not even before wartime that people are getting the right weapons and are training on them. So that part we're going to have to skip. Yeah, You're going to have to pass them through Poland into western Ukraine. And if you look at the disposition of Russian forces, most of the attacking Russian units are east of the Dnieper River. The one exception are Russian forces and potentially Belarusian forces that are coming in from the north and east of Kiev. So this leaves a nice opening to supply Ukraine and the western Ukraine from the Polish border. That's where American forces are. A lot of Uh, I think that's where about 7,000 American forces are. So they'll transit across the border, but still it's going to take a while for them to get to any organized uh, Ukrainian units. And by the time they get there, uh, I think the Russians are baking on that organized conventional uh, defense of Ukraine, at least, again, west of the Dnieper River around Kiev, will have collapsed. Now, you, you, you gave a couple of examples early on about early excitement or early 
miscalculation or misreporting, both of those ended up with the more powerful army won. Is yeah. that what you're kind of predicting here in Russia, despite the, everybody wanting to be on Ukraine's side? Is Russia just going to be too much for Ukraine to handle? Well, I think we have to look at what I what we have to speculate a little bit about what Putin's strategy is. I don't think he wants to occupy uh, Ukraine. The lessons of Afghanistan, not just our experience there, but the Russian experience in Afghanistan, loom large. The model here, I think, is going back in history a little bit further. Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968. Get in there, install a new regime, crush the Ukrainian military so they can't resist you later. And you're balancing against that, against the desire to avoid a long, grinding war of attrition. And the uh, Russian occupation of Ukraine would, would generate an insurgency that I think the Russians don't want to fight. And I think they're conscious of that, and I think they're a little frustrated that they haven't won quickly yet. Nevertheless, they have some aces in their back pocket. They still have those, a lot of conventional forces they haven't brought to bear, uh, and they still have a lot of standoff fires in, in the form of uh, missiles, cruise missiles, and artillery. And again, they, could finally, they can bring in their aircraft, uh, which they haven't really used, and they don't even have to use smart bombs in a way to try to break the Ukrainians' at least ability to resist, if not their will to fight. But if they only install a puppet government and they don't occupy it per se and support it with military, what's to stop the same Ukrainian spirit that wants to fight back from from resisting that government and overthrowing it? It's a terrible solution. Uh, I think that uh, for all the talk about Putin being this mastermind, he's made some blunders. If you do install a puppet, you'll probably have to go back. But my colleague Alexander Downs at George Washington University just wrote a terrific book that shows that when you go into a country and change the regime, nine times out of ten, it ends up worse for you, which is probably why the uh, Soviet forces basically occupied the Warsaw Pact. I think a better solution for Russia and, frankly, for the West and NATO is some kind of arrangement where the Ukraine is militarily neutral. It retains its sovereignty, but it's not part of NATO. And there's a model for this, and I get uh, excoriated on social media for suggesting it, but it's Finland. Uh, In World War II, the Soviets invaded Finland. Uh, The Finns bloodied the Soviets. When the war ended, the Finns didn't want to be invaded again, and so they accommodated the Soviets by being militarily neutral. That's probably the best we can hope for in Ukraine, although the way both sides are talking, including the Ukrainians, no one is really seeing that as a vision forward. Hmm. Well, you can't be surprised that people don't jump at the idea of being Finland. (laughs) It's never been a popular place to emulate, but uh, fascinating stuff. But they're they're cursed by a terrible geography, and and frankly, NATO didn't want to put them into the alliance to begin with, so there are some realities they need to recognize. Mm-hmm. Jason, thanks for all that. It's very mm-hmm. enlightening and, uh, and and really good. It's a good idea. I hope we get a chance to talk to you again. Take care. Thank you so much. Jason Castillo there, uh, former Department of Defense uh, Strategy and Plans Office, explaining things very Real nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was very informative. God. It is 760 WJR.